The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Mississippi native Felder Rushing is an 11th generation Southerner. After retiring from Mississippi State University as a consumer horticulturalist, he spends half his year in his celebrated Mississippi cottage garden and the other half in a small terraced herb garden in Lancashire, England. Felder is a syndicated newspaper columnist, an online contributor for HGTV, and host of a weekly NPR garden program, The Gestalt Gardener. He has also been a writer, photographer, and editor for over a dozen magazines, including Horticulture, Fine Gardening, Better Homes and Gardens, Landscape Architecture, Garden Design, and the National Geographic. He is the author or co-author of 32 books, including several national award winners. He regularly lectures coast-to-coast and overseas. He has been featured three times in the New York Times, most recently for forming and internationally promoting the all-senses, all-seasons approach of slow gardening. Southern Living Magazine featured Felder as one of the 25 people most likely to change the South. Felder has served as a national director of the Garden Writers Association, board officer of the American Horticulture Society, and member of the Royal Horticulture Society and the English Cottage Gardening Association. This is episode 55, Maverick Gardeners with Felder Rushing on the Garden Question Podcast. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Builder, what is a maverick gardener? been a long time trying to come up with the, the descriptor that we ended up with Maverick with. We're talking about people to do their own thing. They're not rebels. They're not pushing back. They're not trying to argue with anybody. It's people who basically follow their own bliss. They do what they want to do, regardless of what the fashion is. A lot of times the neighbors don't appreciate some of the stuff they do. They tend to overplant. They tend to leave hoses around and bags of compost. They tend to over-accessorize with homemade art. Basically, it's the quirky people out there who are doing their own thing and they're blissfully okay with it. Sometimes there's more horticulture going on in these gardens than in botanic gardens because they're always looking for plants. They're sharing plants. They're collecting plants. They're planting things in ways that the horticulture say doesn't work and it ends up working. They tend to mix colors together that a designer would say you shouldn't put together. They tend to have too many wind chimes. Basically, people who are keeping the spirit of gardening alive. As a matter of fact, I call them keepers of the gardening flame. Sometimes people think they're, they're crazy because they don't fit in. 
Craig, I compare them to the people who go to professional football games and they put on funny hats and grease paint and costumes. And they go, oh, woohoo. When you look at them, you know what they're doing. They're supporting their sport and their team. But when they go home, they take their costumes and the grease paint off. Well, Maverick Gardeners are the garden version of those folks, except they can't go home and take it off because they are home. They're just real exuberant about their team and their sport. It just happens to be gardening, and they have crazy costumes. Would you find many Maverick Gardeners in a homeowner association neighborhood? You would, but it would be in the backyard. The difference between a living room where you entertain company and the den where you have dirty socks on the coffee table. We all have this spirit. We all have a little bit of pushback spirit, but Maverick Gardeners aren't pushing back. They're just simply doing their own thing. One of the people that I've featured in this Maverick Gardener book, really well-known landscape architect, he's known all over the South. He's been in Southern Living like 50 times. You have to go through a gate with a guard who looks at a clipboard before he'll let you in their neighborhood. But you go in his backyard and it's just like somebody had just blown it out. Over accessorized, he's exuberant with his plants. He loves textures. He loves colors and sounds. He just has one of those kind of gardens, but is hidden behind the facade of a very upscale neighborhood. It's a spirit more than it is how you express it. Tell us about the Maverick Gardener book. I've been on national public radio for over 20 years now, and I had a co-host for a number of years named Dr. Dirt. He's been in magazines, he's been on HGTV, but he's a real dirt gardener. He goes by the name Dirt. That's all he wants to go by. He's passed away several years ago, but for several years, he was my co-host. We talked about everything. I was a professor. He was Dirt. I talked about compost adding stuff and macrobiotics and turning and aerating. He said, it's just a pile of leaves. And every single week of the year for over four years, he brought in a flower arrangement made from his garden that morning, regardless of the season or weather, because he has stuff growing all the time. And when he passed away, I wanted to celebrate him. And then I realized there's people like that everywhere. I'm like that. This landscape architect's like that. So I started looking at the type of personality that does this kind of gardening versus what I call the blue ribbon horticulture type of approach. People who do their own thing and they are everywhere, Craig. Every neighborhood has got them, whether you see them or not. And I realized that there's a personality type that's scattered all around the world. Rather than feature just Dr. Dirt, I've got a whole chapter with pictures and his recipes and his philosophy. I decided to start looking at people who also do that. And I came across a wide variety of different kinds of people with different backgrounds and education and where they live and what they love and all that. And they end up having the same kind of garden. So it's a style of garden that's pinned to a personality type. And I featured eight of those in this book. The book has very little about gardening in it because you know this is my third of the 30-something books I've written. This is the third most important one I've got. It's the final version of what I call my triad, the Felder's Garden Triad. In it, I have more psychology. Why do we do what we do? Why do we not like what other people do? I got into sociology. How do you get away with having wildflowers in your lawn and still get along with neighbors? In other words, psychology and sociology of what and why we do rather than how we do things. So that's where Maverick Gardens come from. It's lessons on being liberated as a gardener. Of all the books I've written, there's only three that are truly important to me. It's my life's work. I've got a degree in horticulture, but I've got a master's in education and psychology. I'm not a horticulturist. I'm a teacher goal of teaching isn't to throw out information. That's what I did when I was with Extension Service. The goal of teachers is to create changes in behavior to help people do better or at least not do so bad. That's when I started looking at plants and the process of how we grow them and why we grow them. That's my trilogy. 
Started with Pass Along Plants, which I co-wrote with Steve Bender from Southern Living. And it's about the kind of plants that everybody grows and nobody buys. And then it went to Slow Gardening, which is how do people who don't know anything about horticulture, how do they garden? How did Aunt Mamie do it? She had beautiful roses and she didn't know anything about pruning just right or fertilizing. How do people do things on the most basic elemental level? How do we pull the plants together into something that resembles a garden? And then Maverick Gardeners, we talked about plants with pass along plants, process with slow gardening, and then the people. Because plants grow by themselves, Craig, out along the roadside or in the woods. As you know, working with garden design, you can arrange plants in all sorts of combinations, but it's just a palette. It's like two-dimensional. But until you add that third thing, the people, the personalities, the wishes, the hopes, the fears, how you end up arranging plants to suit you, then you don't really have a garden. It's not plants. It's not process. That's horticulture. It's about gardening. And that's where all three of these things come together. You already told us about dirt. Did you give us an example about a gardener? It doesn't even have to be in the book. It could be another person. There's tons of them. And we all know people who, you know, if you see a plant in their yard, you stop by and just strike up a conversation. They end up giving you a piece of their garden. But there's a woman who lives a few blocks from me who is a Jamaican immigrant. She's a nurse. She works at a mental health facility. Instead of having grass, she has all sorts of flowers that looks very much like what you'd find in a Caribbean island. A lot of color and textures and shapes. And she accessorizes with wooden fish and colorful containers. Every week she takes into her work at a mental health facility, takes a flower arrangement from her garden because it makes people smile. That's one example. There's a fellow who lives in another direction about a mile who lives in an apartment and he wants desperately to garden, but he doesn't have any place. So he started planting between the sidewalk and the curb of a parking lot across the street, not even his property, and ended up having a, a gorilla garden, you know, where you have just all sorts of stuff going on with plants and accessories. He's got uh, herbs and flowers and vegetables. Y'all have little corner bookstores? Yes. Well, he has a little corner herbery, and people bring their children by, and he shows them how to make little cut flower bouquets, how to harvest oregano to make pizza with. So it's become a focal point for the whole community. He doesn't even own the property. It looks like a jungle. Throw in the landscape architect, and then there's a woman who works at a garden center only because it's the way she can afford to buy plants for her garden. So that all these kind of folks who pull stuff together, enjoy what they do, and share with others, they're in every neighborhood. It's a personality type. Find this personality to be consistent across the world then. Yes, we find maverick gardeners in Japan where folks don't have room. They'll have just a balcony and it'll be completely dripping with plants and hanging baskets and wind chimes and things like that. You find them in really straight-laced places in Switzerland where they'll have a window box that's just over the top. I find them in South America, Africa, where people maybe can't afford really good walkway materials. They sweep their lawns, but they will line their walkway with bottles stuck neck down. I see them in California. I see it in a botanic garden. You go to any flower show and go to the children's gardens where the children do uh, displays for their class, whether it's the Chelsea Flower Show or the New England Garden Show. They always have a children's section full of exuberance and things planted in boots and cans and milk jugs. This is an exuberance that children have. Somehow when we grow up, we kind of lose it or we get taught that it's not appropriate to play in the dirt anymore. 
we start out with this wonder and amazement as children. Somehow we get it beaten out of us as we grow up. These are folks that just don't outgrow it. They love color and texture and variety and something going on all the time. Sounds like what you're describing is yard art. Does that tend to go to more of the folk art or is there different styles of art in these gardens? There's all sorts of ways to accessorize. Whether you plant in a half whiskey barrel or a flower pot made of a tire, they're both recycled. If you compare it to Louis the Fourteenth, he had Versailles, right? Mm-hmm. Eight hundred eight-foot naked god and goddess statues. The guy was a nut, but because it was well done, people celebrated. But he had way too many statues for your average king, I guess. So he was one of these folks. When it comes to accessorizing, style is more important. Scale is more important. I'll give you a classic example. When I'm in England, I live in England half the year. I go to these fancy gardens. They have these wonderful marble statues. And they're terrific because they're the right scale. They're the right style. They wouldn't work in my garden. I've got a little cottage garden in Mississippi. I've got even a smaller little garden in England, but it wouldn't work. So what I've got in my garden, a lot of people turn their nose up at without realizing that it's crucial to my garden. I've got my late grandmother's concrete chicken in my garden. I know it's not an eight-foot naked goddess statue. I know that. But it's the right scale. It's the right style. And when I look at it, I don't see a concrete chicken. I see my grandmother and her zinnias because she used to have it in with her zinnias. Almost always, the garden art is going to be meaningful. It's going to be expressive. It's going to say something about the personality of the person who puts it out there. One of the classic things we used to see a lot of are glass bottle trees. A lot of people assume that they are from Africa. Well, they're really not. They're from Saudi Arabia with genies and lamps and stuff like that. A lot of people would put glass up in their trees, not because of voodoo or bad spirits, but because it sparkled in the sunshine. They're holding glass up to the sky so its colors could sing. That's how a friend of mine put it. So whether it's a recycled containers or homemade scarecrow or a bottle tree or whether it's a, a pair of, of uh, fake lions at the end of your driveway, it's punctuation, it's expression, it's characterful. Maverick gardeners tend to put what they want out there rather than what the neighbors expect. Speaking about expectations, how would a Maverick gardener express themselves in a lawn? Maverick gardeners are a slice of gardening. Even non-Maverick gardeners, there's a real clear trend, Craig. And I know, you know, working with landscapes as you do, you know that over the past 10 or 15 or 20 years, it's been a shift from wall-to-wall grass, high maintenance, irrigating three times a week, which is still fine. I'm a turf guy. I wrote the forward to a manual lawn care. I appreciate golf course maintenance and highly industrial, perfect home lawns. But the trend when you get away towards where people do their own thing is to have smaller lawns, more shrubs, expanded flower beds, more of a throw rug of grass rather than wall-to-wall carpet. We're starting to see a lot of people actually mowing around the clover in the spring rather than spraying all the weeds out there. And again, I'm not talking about high-end clients. I'm talking about garden variety gardeners. I've seen a tremendous number of people who are simply mowing what grows rather than worrying about making it perfect. They'll raise their mower. They'll have some uh, spring wildflowers. Maybe they'll plant some daffodils out in the grass between the henbit and the clover and the, the dandelions and all the wonderful little bulbs and low-growing things. If it doesn't get too tall, if it still looks like a lawn and get through mowing it, they'll leave them. There's a movement up north in Wisconsin and Minnesota called No Mow May. But they're saying, wait until late May before you start mowing your lawn. Here in the South, it would be more like April. Instead of mowing at the very first time you could get out there, leave some of those wildflowers. And I'm not talking about knee-high metal plants, but little 
three or four inch plants, the wild violets, for example, and anoxalis, uh, leave those, mow around some, and notice that they are loaded with pollinators, with bees, native bees, as well as honeybees, and butterflies every warm day in the south. For a long time, it was called meadow lawn. Well, meadow to me is knee-high to waist-high wildflowers. And I'm past president of Native Plant Society. I appreciate that. But most people don't want a meadow. They want a lawn. So I've coined the phrase flower lawn, where you simply mow high and don't worry about the weeds, but notice that they are loaded with all sorts of pollinators. Come summertime, by the time you've mowed it two or three times, they've gone for the summer. You can have a perfectly normal summer lawn and late winter and spring flower lawn in the same spot. So we're seeing a real big trend towards fewer herbicides, more emphasis on leaving at least a few low-growing wildflowers for pollinators. That's a huge trend. It's a huge trend. In England, the way they do it is they mow an area regularly, and then they have an area they mow just every now and then, and then they have an area they don't mow at all, sort of like a putting green or fairway in a rough. They'll have a small managed lawn, and then a flower lawn, and then flower beds with the wildflowers in it. And this three-tier approach, it works as long as you've got that one neat area that let the neighbor know you're not a slob, that you know what you're doing. Matter of fact, we came up with a, a little sign, a little round sign you put out there. It says flower lawn. Got a picture of a butterfly and a bee on it. It said butterfly crossing. Put that sign out there and the neighbors they look at it and it interprets what you're doing it lets them know sort of like a wildlife habitat sign in your front yard you put that out there you can get away with stuff well having a little sign that says flower lawn lets people know that you're doing this on purpose and it's a loftier purpose yeah yeah gives me an excuse not to mow my lawn then this weekend because there's so many flowers out there i'm I was loving it, and I said, I really don't want to mow those. They're so pretty. You know, you can mow around some of those. In other words, how contrast is what makes it work. If you don't mow at all, somebody's going to complain. But if you have a neat mowing strip out near the street, maybe a pathway across the middle, or if nothing else, just mow around certain patches. Put some plastic Easter eggs out there or plant some daffodils, but do something to let people know that, yeah, it's like shaving. If you've got a, a beard, you shave up to the beard and it makes the beard look neater. That's a pretty good metaphor there. Yeah. You're adding definition to the garden. Yeah. How does all this fall into slow gardening? Well, slow gardening, uh, Craig, first of all, it's not lazy. It's not necessarily time consuming. It's something approaching a passion or a love. The word amateur means to love. It means focusing on all your senses, including intellectual, on all seasons, sharing with others. Slow gardening is a more relaxed attitude, but it's not necessarily no horticulture. I'll give you a couple of examples. If you like feeding birds and you go out and you put bird seed out there and you watch the birds and you keep track of what's out there, you're paying attention, you're celebrating, you're connecting. That's slow gardening. Hybridizing daylilies, keeping records, pride in workmanship, something that you do deliberately and makes you feel good. Bonsai takes time, but it's exacting and you're focused. It's sort of the opposite of fast food gardening. Many of my peers, many of my friends have landscape maintenance companies and they know which customers really enjoy gardening, which one just wants you to mow and blow and go. Well, see, fast food gardening versus doing things because it's interesting, it's time consuming to some extent, but mostly it focuses you on all your senses all seasons. Slow gardening is really relaxed attitude, not trying to really reach a goal. I'm trained in horticulture. I'm a retired university horticulture professor. I know about crop production. I know about efficiency. I know about getting the most with the least and how to get from point A to point B. Horticulture, crop production is all about getting a blue ribbon or filling your freezer or having a lawn of the month. If there's a goal involved, that's where horticulture comes in. Slow gardening, though, is more of a right brain thing. 
It's more the journey than the destination. It's savoring what you do. Uh, I'll give you an example from overseas. If you go to England, most people do in the spring or the summer, and you see these English gardens, and we celebrate them. But if you go over there like I do in the wintertime, because I'm over there all summer and all winter, all the Royal Horticulture Society Botanic Gardens have got an area set aside in their garden, a big area that's designed to be at its peak in January and February with colors and textures and winter flowers and barks and colorful foliage and, and accents. It's unbelievable. They deliberately plan for things that look at their best and the worst time of year to garden because over there they believe that winter is a time for gardening also. So they focus on that instead of just celebrating the azaleas and then moving on. Anything you can do that focuses you, that calms you down, that captures your interest, that makes you look forward to some things, that helps you celebrate all year long, that's slow gardening versus just mowing, blowing, fast food gardening. In the southern United States, I've got to ask, what would you suggest that we would do that would bring winter interest to our gardens? Our friends up north in Minnesota, you know, I love them to death, but they have undulating mounds in the snow in the wintertime. Even in the northern part of the south, you can get away with some camellias, the flowering quince that blooms in the wintertime. We have acuba, mahonia. I know that a lot of these are invasive exotic plants, but nandina berries, paper white narcissus, edgeworthia. We have so many. Th- if you run around the older parts of town, country gardens, cemeteries in every month of the year and notice what's at its peak then and make a note of that, you'll find a really nice palette of plants every season. So it's just a matter of pulling them all together into one spot with a nice accessory, a pretty bench, a gazing ball, a statue, anything that brings color and texture as well as flowers. We have winter honeysuckle shrub that is in full bloom in the middle of the winter. So you could do this and add trees that have interesting bark. We can do that. It's just a matter of finding things that do well in every month and pulling them together into a nice little composition, just like we do in our spring gardens. And you can do that for fall as well, too. I'm a real believer, Craig, in finding plants that grow in cemetery. If dead people can grow it, I want it in my yard. (laughs) I'm lazy. I'm tired. I'm busy. I'm gone half the year. And if it needs to be taken care of, it ain't happening in my yard. I'm a celebrated horticulturist, but I'm gone and I'm lazy. Matter of fact, I'm designing my garden. I know sometimes you ask some of your guests, what are they doing differently in their garden? I'm actually practicing what I call creative deconstructionism. I'm losing some of the plants and opening up for more paved areas, more decks, more flagstone, more nightlight, things that are more open and people-friendly without me having to do a lot of stuff. If it has to be pruned or sprayed, I don't have time in my life for it. And so I just ride around other people's yards and look at that stuff. And in my garden, I'm looking for things that are low maintenance, that look good all the time without me having to do much. If I can't do it with a glass of iced tea in my hand, it ain't worth doing. Oh, well, you know, I got to keep in mind, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm retired extension horticulturist and blah, blah, blah. What I'm actually doing is I'm looking at plants that really perform well, that make me happy, and I'm losing the periphery plants. I'm just leaving the things that are really catchy. A group of daffodils is a whole lot more interesting and focusing than a long line of daffodils around a tree. See, so I'm just having more focus is what I'm saying. Instead of one flowering quince, I put three because it shows up better. I wanted to get into what is biophilia. Biophilia, love of life. Tell how it relates to my garden. First of all, I'm past president of our Native Plant Society. I lecture about native plants and wildflowers, how to get away with them in really nice landscapes. 
how to really pull it off. I'm using examples from overseas. We like native plants. We like pollinators. We can all recite the benefits of them all. But trying to pull it off in suburbia is kind of hard. Well, Royal Horticulture Society just opened its uh, first new botanic garden in decades last summer. I was there the month it opened. That was the only American journalist, I guess, who was there. One of the things I noticed, their flower beds, their flowing long borders and their collections of plants and their beauty spots, 80 to 85% of the plants in this botanic garden, this fantastic botanic garden, are native to the Southeast United States. They use goldenrod in all of their designs because it's a great plant, but they don't just have it growing wild. They have it growing in groups next to Joe Pieweed next to Leatrice. They use these plants not as native plants, but as good garden plants in masses instead of a a meadow effect. We're looking at ways where people can use wildflowers and attract pollinators without looking like weirdos. I'm going to go ahead and say that. I say that lovingly, but the fact is a mixed meadow is only for some people. You need to have plants that look right as normal garden plants One of the ways we can do that is stop thinking of them as native plants and start looking at them as good garden plants to mix together and match in combinations. That's one of the ways. As a result, you're going to have pollinators. You can have butterflies and honeybees and the little native bees that are so important. And when you start having that, you start seeing more interactions. And first thing you know, you've got a good-looking garden that just happens to be, coincidentally, native plants. They're not hung up at all that all these plants are coming from the United States. Oh, yeah, it's it's amazing. Matter of fact, I was at a a garden center this morning picking up some supplies for a a garden I'm working on, and they have pots full of foxglove. You know, everybody loves foxglove. They have pots of them with three plants, and they're in bloom for $15. Well, that sounds okay until you realize it grows out of cracks and brick walls all over England. When I give a lecture to a garden club in England, and I show a picture of foxglove for $15, they're going to just lose their minds. But you go over to England, and you're going to find 15 different kinds of goldenrod selling for 8 and 10 and $12 a pot in the garden centers there because they appreciate what not native, just like we appreciate things from afar. There's a real big debate right now. You're probably aware of this, native plants versus exotic plants. And I'm one of those who says, can't we just get along? I know the benefits of natives, but exotics also fill some of those niches. Three of my absolute best butterfly plants of all times are not native to Mississippi. I love my native plants, but I'm going to have zinnias, I'm going to have lantana, and I'm going to have an abelia shrub because they're pretty plants and pollinators love it. I like to mix things up and somebody says, well, you can't plant certain things because they're invasive. I'm sorry, but the four of the five worst weeds in my garden that I have to pull all the time are native plants. I know that native plants can't be, quote, invasive. Excuse me, but the definition of invasive means it gets out of control. It takes over other areas. Well, four of my top five worst weeds are native plants. I have to pull them all the time, but they're native, so it's got to be okay. But as soon as I have one little Nandina that pops up across the landscape from the one I've got by my house, all of a sudden I'm a pariah with the Native Plant Society. No, we have a responsibility for the bigger world. But I think that there's good ways for native plant people and people who love plants from afar, including roses and azaleas and daffodils, we can find a way to get along without being at odds with each other. I think that we can get along. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of guilt gardening out there. Yeah, and it's severe. It's a polarized world right now. Whether you're talking about politics, religion, or gardening, it's very polarized. And the people who scream the loudest have got good points. 
but they don't realize that the people on the other side screaming equally loud and they've got good points too. I'm champion that's somewhere in the middle. Yeah, this plant is kind of weedy, so you just try to take care of it. Or it spreads out in the woods. Well, don't plant it. Reconnecting through nature is what we should be doing. Yeah. You know, everybody likes to see a hummingbird. Everybody likes to see honeybees. People like to see butterflies. You can't have those without having some flowers in your yard. You, You can't do it. Even people, though, who live in apartments want to have some kind of connection. They'll have potted plants. I have a good number of container plants that are from the tropics in my home. I put them out in the yard in the shade in the summer because that way they can get some rain while I'm gone. I love plants from all over, and my little container gardens bring joy. They bring comfort. They bring connections, even in the dead of winter in my house by sunny windows. We like to have plants. We need to have those plants. People wouldn't be listening to this podcast if they weren't interested in plants somehow. But I'm just saying that even a simple African violet on a windowsill can be as important all of the botanic gardens in the world put together for horticulture. It's a matter of connecting on whatever level you're most comfortable with. Why do you think we need that connection to nature? A lot of people, though, Craig, were not raised by gardeners. And what's gotten weird now is our parents were not raised by gardeners. We're two or three generations away from people having a garden. Uh, A lot of people are trying to connect. They're looking at container plants on their patio. They don't want to have a a big vegetable garden with 80 feet of okra, but they like to have a pot that's got some oregano and a rosemary and maybe some basil in it. As a matter of fact, my daughter, when she first got started gardening, I gave her a five-gallon paint bucket. And I painted it all sorts of wild colors. So it put oregano, rosemary, and basil in there. She put it on her porch, and she could get her boyfriend to go out and snip some leaves off those herbs and bring them to help her cook. So she was training him through gardening to help in the kitchen with stuff that she grew in a little pot on her porch. And she felt like the world. It made her feel so good, that little connection right there. I'm always telling people, if you want to get children started with gardening, you don't get them to plant a stupid sunflower house. Anybody can do it. There's books written on sunflower houses. Sunflowers take weeks and months to do anything. Kids have moved on. You need to give them something that gives immediate gratification. And I don't think there's anything quicker, more satisfying, easier than giving a kid a pot full of oregano, which they can take cuttings from that day and put in spaghetti or chili on a pizza and have fragrance in their memory and help contribute to food. Starting kids out with things that smell good and feel good and look good and taste good is more important than something that has reward down the road. I think culinary herbs are the quickest way to get people connected to the outdoors. Kind of like the gateway drug. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you this. Do you remember the first time someone ever showed you something in a garden and could explain it to you? Yes, I remember plants that my grandparents had and watering them and things like that. My first plant memory was of a beach ball. We were visiting some relatives down on the beach and I had a colorful beach ball. I had to be three or four years old. I remember that beach ball that landed on a prickly pear cactus. And I remember my mother trying to use cellophane tape to plug up all the holes. My first plant was not a positive memory. I remember the plant. I remember that day. I remember my mother helping me out. And that's what I like to do. Like when my daughter was small, I would make her smell honeysuckle, that horrible, invasive, exotic Japanese honeysuckle. I showed her how to get that little piece of nectar out of by pulling the little string, little stamen and putting it on the tip of her tongue for the rest of her life. Every time she sees or smells or tastes or thinks about honeysuckle, she could think about me. To me, that's a legacy. That's more than building a pyramid. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you this. Okay. Ever get anybody who tells you something for sure is going to work in the yard and you know it doesn't work and you can't tell them that because they'll get mad at you? (laughs) 
Yeah, like a garden myth kind of thing? Yeah. My NPR radio program, Gestalt Gardener, it's a live program. People call in. My friend Walter Reeves, I love Walter and I co-wrote a book together. But he and I do some of the same things. And both of us have a sense of humor because we know if somebody asks you something live and you know the answer is wrong and they want that wrong answer, you know that everybody else is listening too. So you got to be careful. You don't want to offend the caller or embarrass them. And you don't want to look like an idiot with your peers. I have to deal with that all the time about these home remedies that just simply don't work. Give you a couple of examples. Everybody knows that crushed up eggshells, you put around your tomatoes because it provides calcium. But what they're not aware of is it does not. It's the wrong, it's calcium carbonate. It takes a hundred years to break down in a very acidic soil. You have to mix it with a little vinegar to make it fizz up to convert the calcium. People just heard you put eggshell. They say marigolds will repel insects. No, they don't. They attract spider mites. They'll keep nematodes out of your dirt, but we don't have nematodes. People say that you should never prune a crepe myrtle because it's unnatural. And then they pluck their eyebrows and say that's normal. So there's so many things out there that are polarizing. But when it comes to myths, there's one that's going on right now. Maybe you've seen this about the hammerhead flatworm. It's showing up all the time. I'm a professional garden writer. I've been writing for newspapers and magazines and books for over 40 years. Every now and then, a meme comes around, and reporters who really may not have a real deep background in horticulture will write about something because it sounds exciting. And this flatworm thing is poisonous. It'll kill you. It's eating all our earthworms. It's new. I played with them when I was a kid back in the 1960s. They're not new. They will kill an earthworm, but earthworms can outrun them. But earthworms can get away from them quickly. These things end up eating snails and slugs. Every now and then, they'll eat an earthworm, but it doesn't even touch the population of earthworms, which are also invasive exotics from Europe. So flatworms, one of those things that comes around every now and then, and people freak out. Well, it's poisonous. I'm thinking, yeah, if you eat it or lick your fingers, it's poisonous. So don't do that. Yeah. A daffodil is more poisonous than a flatworm. But anyway, right now, that's the latest thing. The, this horrible, poisonous, exotic, new, dangerous, live forever hammerhead flatworm is nowhere near as bad in your garden as an ordinary garden slug. So I have to deal with all the I'll tell you another one. Crate murder. Whoo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not even going to ask you where you stand on this, Craig, because you got to get along with people, and I don't. Well, I get kind of emotionally involved with that, so it's better not to no, let me see my size. No, no, no. <laughs> you have me on here because I'm an expert. You have me on here to raise issues. Here's the deal. Pruning crepe myrtles badly, just whacking them back, is called dehorning. I taught the tree surgery course at Mississippi State University. You don't just cut a plant straight across. That's a bad thing to do. But if you prune them back into those fist-shaped balls, you know, at the end of a stick, mm -hmm. that's called pollarding. It's been done for centuries. They do it in every Shinto temple in Japan, where crepe myrtles are from. They do it in Colonial Williamsburg. They do it at William Shakespeare's place. They do it at the American Horticulture Society headquarters in Virginia. It's a style of pruning called pollarding. Everybody takes pictures of all these little woven fences. They weave branches to make a wattle fence. Right. They do that from crepe myrtle branches. <laughs> oh. It's been done forever. Am I saying you should do it? No. But when somebody says you should not prune crepe myrtles because you're a bad person if you do, I hope they don't prune their boxwoods or their roses or anything else because it's just pruning. As a horticulturist, I can tell you, you can prune a crepe myrtle with a drunk driver and a pickup truck, and it'll sprout back out and bloom. 
what I'm saying is crate murder is a style issue, not a horticulture issue. And I compare it to people who would come to my house at a party, go to my bathroom and turn my toilet paper around because it's not the way they do it. <laughs> if you don't want to prune crate myrtles, don't do it. But if you want to do it, they do it in Japan. American Horticulture Society has been done forever. It's just a style of pruning. Don't like it, don't do it. But when you make other people feel bad about doing stuff that's okay to do, that's where I start taking issue. That be starts becoming horticulture, starts becoming social. I'm sorry, but crepe murder was invented as a joke by my friends at Southern Living. What they're saying is, don't booger your plants up. Yeah. If you're going to prune them, do it right. Woo, was that a rant? You're going to cut this out? <laughs> yeah, i got the power of editing here. <laughs> Cause I'm... But anyway, think, think about rolling toilet paper. You're not going to convince me to roll it the other way. Yeah, yeah. I hear what you're saying, but nope, I'm going to roll mine the way I want to roll. On my blog, I've got pictures of well-pruned, pollarded, fist-pruning crepe myrtles in Japan and in England and the American Horticulture Society. I'm just saying, don't be a bully. I always figured that stressed the plant out a lot by doing that, by cutting them back that hard. And does it does it stress roses to prune them back to a foot and a half tall every winter? No, no, it no. doesn't. It just promotes growth. <laughs> yeah, you have an overgrown boxwood that's five feet tall and wide. You can cut it back to three feet tall and get it started over again. It's called rejuvenation. Yeah. Same plant physiology. The bottom line: had a lady say, "Well, it's just not natural," and I agree, it's not natural. I couldn't help but point out she had shaved her eyebrows off and painted them in a different part of her face. And she was talking about <laughs> unnatural. Don't like it. Don't do it. But stop being a bully. Okay. I'll have to change my part of the talk then. <laughs> no, no. You don't have to. I'm just saying. The American Horticulture Society has a vitex that's been pollarded into big balls on the ends since 1918. That's 103 years now. They know what they're doing. It's just called pollarding. I'm just saying. Don't like it. Don't do it. Okay. We'll leave it there. <laughs> We're not agreeing to disagree. We're agreeing that there's different styles out there. And so that's all it is. I like the natural sculptured style myself. And I find that they bloom earlier when they're not cut back real hard. Yeah, they bloom early about three weeks. Yeah. I, I give you another thing. A lot of people have poodle, call it cloud pruning, uh, junipers, little poodle looking junipers. Mm -hmm. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing. That's all I'm saying. I don't understand why people buy those anyway, because especially if you don't like pruning, because that plant's going to revert back within two years. It'll be back and you've paid a lot of dollars for that plant. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just saying there are different styles out there. My good friend, Steve Bender with Southern Living, the Grumpy Gardener, he and I co-wrote Pass Along Plants. It was named the best written garden book in the country the year it came out. We agree on stuff when it's after work and we're having a drink, but he is going to always be against crepe murder because he helped coin the term. That's all I'm saying. We have a lot of disconnect between horticulture science and amateur gardens. I was raised in the garden center industry, raised with landscaping. I've done that all of my life, but I'm not a horticulturist at home. I'm just a gardener. There's a lot of horticulture things that I taught master gardeners that are correct, but they're not right. You don't have to have your soil tested. You know you don't, Craig. But we have to say that because the horticulture sentence says you don't have to prune a rose above an outward-facing five-leafed leaf. You can prune a rose with a goat, and it'll sprout back out and bloom. Watering the lawn. If I say you have to water your lawn three times a week, which is what I was taught in turf management, Half my neighbors are going to think I'm an idiot because they don't ever water theirs and it looks okay. 
But if I say, you really don't have to water your grass, my horticulture friends scream at me like I'm, you know, the enemy or something. So you have to balance stuff. You don't have to do horticulture stuff to have a nice garden. And this is a horticulturist who's saying that. You don't have to do that. You really ought to have good plants that grow well in our climate. Natives, a lot of times, fit that. You really ought to plant them well so you don't have to water them and bathe them all the time. You really ought to mix things up with shapes and textures and sizes and seasons and hopefully attract pollinators. All of those are good things. We don't have to get into, for example, with floral design or landscape design, I learned this thing called line, mass, and filler. Line, mass, and filler have to be interpreted. But if you say, put something spiky, something roundy, and something frilly, people know what you're talking about. It's that old thriller, spiller, filler thing. You don't have to explain what spiky, roundy, and frilly means. But if you put, whether it's in a flower arrangement or a flower border, or even trees and shrubs, you put a spiky ball cypress with a big old roundy magnolia and a frilly crepe myrtle off to one side, those shapes resonate with each other, just like they would in a flower arrangement. So spiky, roundy, frilly, shapes and sizes, good, tough plants that don't require a lot of pesticides, plants that have flowers, something every season of the year. That's not horticulture. That's just good gardening. But horticulture pushes us more toward perfection, would you think? Well, horticulture is science, the science of efficient crop production. There's an end that we're shooting for, and efficiencies are important. Keeping things neat is important. If you're trying to achieve a goal, all these little nuances and tricks and tips and shortcuts, all of these things are very important. If you want a lawn of the month, you got to mow regularly. You need to irrigate. You need to fertilize with the right kind of fertilizer. And occasionally, you have to apply herbicides. But if you just want something that's nice and green, you can kick a soccer ball around on that also has little butterflies, just raise your mower and mow what grows. That works too. And there's not much difference between the two. If you take your glasses off, they look exactly the same. Horticulture is achieving efficiency and a goal. Gardening is just enjoying what you do. And mow what grows is just as valid is what I call a manicured lawn. Unless you live in a place that requires you to have a manicured lawn. And that's not a horticulture thing. That's a social thing. How did you decide to pursue horticulture? It's a great question, Craig, except I had to change the midstream. Here's what I mean. I was raised in a, a garden center. We had wholesale. We grew trees and shrubs in dirt and in containers. And we did landscaping. We also sold the peat moss and the roses and the pansies. So I was raised with that. And so when I finished school, I decided to go into horticulture. And about halfway through, I realized this is just efficient crop production. They're saying that plants aren't worth anything unless you sell them. And I decided I didn't want to be a horticulturist. I appreciate the science and the physiology and the, the shortcuts and the reach for perfection. I appreciate that. I appreciate a basket of tomatoes. But I realized some people plant tomatoes and they don't make it and they feel like failures. So I decided, why not just tell them when the tomatoes get about the size of a golf ball, instead of worrying about whether they're going to take a Sharpie pen and draw a smiley face on the green tomato, and you will have succeeded in that. I decided rather than being horticulture, which is teaching people to reach a goal, I'm going to interpret the horticulture rules. You know, they say you need to fertilize your grass this much every year. I know you don't have to fertilize at all, but it's not going to be a pretty long. So I say you ought to fertilize at least every three or four years and recycle the clippings. So that's a good, happy medium. I decided rather than to be horticulture, to go into education and to interpret horticulture. Is that what led you more into the garden communication? 
Yeah, I was frustrated because a lot of my horticulture friends, they could talk for 45 minutes about a pencil, but they wouldn't explain what the eraser is made out of. They make your eyes bleed with detail and they're missing the point. The audience just wants to know, how can I do this? Classic example, composting. I've written chapters on composting, bioactivation, thermophilic bacteria, carbon nitrogen ratio, turning, aerating, all that kind of stuff. I've done it from start to finish in three weeks flat. Beautiful finished compost. Worked my tail off, but I did it. And then I found out nobody cared because you could buy it for a dollar. I have two rules for composting. Stop throwing that stuff away. Find a place to pile it up. It's called a leaf pile. If you just pile stuff up on one side, dig out of the other, you're making compost without having to do the master gardener checklist of stuff. See, if everybody was told you have to have a leaf pile because they're not going to pick it up on the curb anymore, more people would be composters. But let's say you've got to do it with this kind of bin, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. A lot of people just aren't going to do it. I'm trying to encourage people to do simple things easily. Then if they want to speed it up, that's when the horticulture kicks in to help them be more efficient. In England, nobody picks up bags of leaves on the curb. They don't do it. They never have. They never will. They don't have the facility. So everybody's got a compost. They just call it a leaf pile. We don't have to do it because they whisk it away on Tuesdays and Thursdays. As a result, the only people who compost are kind of hardcore people who are doing it partly as virtue signaling and partly because it's interesting to do. Trying to change society. Flower lawns are okay. Mow what grows. A leaf pile is composting. It's okay to prune shrubs into shapes without killing them. You should plant stuff that had butterflies. You should share with children. Show children how to do simple, simple things. This is gardening. It's not horticulture. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? Ooh, there's been a bunch of them. Been a bunch of them. And I'm not saying this to patronize you, but what you're doing is important. You're getting word out, different diverse opinions and ideas out there. That's crucial. You're getting the word out. But I remember back in 1983, this is a long time ago, I had a fellow who is a president emeritus of the American Horticulture Society, Dr. Mark Cathy, live on radio out of the clear blue. He said, Felder, do you remember the first time someone showed you a plant and explained it to you? All this rush of, you know, it's like a Star Trek thing of all these, these lights and flashing. And I went back to my childhood and I remember stupid, simple little things that were important to me. Like my grandfather showed me how to step on a pecan because if it cracked, it was faulty and it wasn't worth picking it up, but it mashed in the ground. It was good enough to bend over and pick up. I remember little things that grown up showed me as a kid that made sense. And so my heroes are the people who take time with new gardeners, whether they're children or grown ups, and show them how to do simple things that they will have such easy success that they want to try something else. But if what they try else doesn't work, they can fall back on that simple stuff. My horticulture heroes are people who explain things in common language. One last one, the late, great J.C. Ralston from North Carolina. I taught master gardeners that a weed is a plant out of place, which everybody agrees. If an oak tree comes up the crack of the sidewalk, it's a weed. It's got to go. That's a human-centric point of view. He put a different perspective. He said a weed is any plant having to deal with an unhappy human. <laughs> and wow, that's right. Are wild violets weeds? Yeah. But what if you like them? Well, it's part of the flower lawn, isn't it? Right. Just changes perspective. My heroes are people who put things in simple, simple language so that people who don't have horticulture background can get it. 
You remember Mr. Potato Head? Oh, yeah. You get a box of eyes and ears and nose and you create something. Well, that's how I tell people to design stuff. If you can make a bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich without getting so much mayonnaise on your bread, it makes the bread soggy. And without putting too much salt, cutting your tomatoes right, if you can do that, you can garden. If you can crumble crackers up in a bowl of chili without getting too many crackers in there, you understand soil amendments. If you don't put at least a handful of crackers in a bowl of chili, you can't tell. If you put more than two handful, it ain't chili anymore. People understand those kind of metaphors, you know, simple, simple things. You don't say two to four inches. You say one or two handful of crackers in a bowl of chili. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I like it. <laughs> Horticulture is technical. Gardening is simple. Kids can garden. New people can garden. But if you scare them off with horticulture, if you tell them you shouldn't prune your crepe myrtles because it's bad, and then they notice that they do it down at the Baptist church, there's something wrong here. <laughs> if you're going to prune it, here's the right way to prune it. <laughs> Am I beating this too much? No, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Know your audience. If I'm talking to master gardeners or if I'm talking to horticulture scientists, I'm going to use different words. Or if I'm talking to a garden club or uh, giving a luncheon speech for the banker's wives, I'm not going to mention horticulture. I'm going to talk about slow gardening. Pass along plants that are easy to share, that are easy to grow, that are meaningful. Uh, slow gardening. You only need two rules for gardening. Dig a hole, put something in it green side up. We can take it from there. We can make more complicated. Maverick gardeners, do what you like. Hold your head up. People are going to talk about you no matter what. No matter what you do or how well you do it, they're going to talk about you anyway. Just hold your head up. It's okay to put pink and purple together. Whoever designed purple coneflowers had pretty good taste when they did that. You and I have been taught stuff. We've been taught things by scientists that make sense. We know why you prune a rose above an hour face and five leaflet leaf. We know directional pruning. We know that you can thin stuff out rather than shear them. We know all that stuff. We know that mowing the grass at the right height is the single most important thing you can do to have a healthy lawn. But our audiences don't. And all they get is a bunch of stupid rules. You got to get them involved and get them hooked. Yeah. If they have a different perspective of what's better, then there's ways to do it better. But if they enjoy the way it is, just enjoy it the way it is. Horticulture is not a cult. Gardening is a big tent. It's got room for all of us. It really does. Just like clothes and music and food, you don't all have to do the same things. So it's time to stop shaming people for not doing it the way we were taught. It's like saying, you're not any good because your hair is too long. Well, I, I happen to have long hair. So did Ben Franklin. He was a $100 bill. I sell an aircraft carrier to earn the right to cut my hair the way I want. Somebody says, why don't you cut your hair? I'm going to say, why don't you stop plucking your eyebrows? As long as you pluck your eyebrows, you can't say squat to me about pruning my shrubs. <laughs> get old enough to have white hair growing up your ears, you can say you can get away with more stuff. Plus, I'm retired. I don't have to make people happy. You do. I don't. If they say, we want you to plant a dogwood, Craig, and you're thinking dogwoods have a really low success rate, why don't we put a Grancy Greybeard? It's so much more interesting, and everybody's got dogwoods that look like hell, but yours, Grancy Greybeard, everybody loves it. No, we want a dogwood. Okay, yes, ma'am, plant a dogwood. Don't give them any guarantees. Oh, I don't. That's one of the few plants, that and rhododendrons, I don't guarantee. I say, sure, I'll plant it there, but it's not guaranteed like these other plants. You want to know a really quirky little tip about that? Yeah. Dogwoods rely on a specific type of mycorrhizae, not just the mycorrhizae you get at a garden center. Particular kind of mycorrhizae that help dogwood roots extend by 20 times. And if you're planting a, a dogwood, go find a really good, healthy dogwood and get some of that dirt. 
and inoculate the new hole with that dogwood dirt, it's got the right kind of mycorrhizae. Isn't that a stupid thing to know? Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. When you're production, you don't put mycorrhizae in bark potting soil. You got to inoculate dirt with the specific type of mycorrhizae that it likes. And it's common. A lot of people look up, they have it anyway. But if you want to insure it, put a, some, fr- you know, don't leave it on the dashboard of your truck. Get you some fresh dogwood dirt, mix it in the hole, and it's automatically got a 50% better chance of surviving. Well, I have dogwoods that pop up in my yard from time to time, and I just pull them up and go plant them somewhere else in the yard where they won't be in the way. You're pulling them up with some of the mycorrhizae hooked to it. When you buy it at a garden center, it's in bark with a little peat in it. It doesn't have that mycorrhizae. Pulling them up, they already got the good stuff hanging on through the roots. So stupid little things I've learned over the years. That's a great hint. Do you have a funny landscape or garden story? Oh, man, this is going to sound so weird. But there's a church near me that has a beautiful flowering tree that's got the best big ripe red crab apples. And it's a self-pollinating crab apple. A lot of crab apples aren't. This is one that has beautiful flowers, got beautiful big fruits all by itself in the middle of nowhere. I'm thinking, I really want one of those, but I don't know where you can buy it. So I took some cuttings off of it. I'm going to say I liberated them from the church one night. And I took on a friend who let me graft them onto some rootstocks. And so I have this little grafted crabapple tree. And it's only a foot tall, but it's blooming this year. So still in the pot. I took it back to the church. And the bees were all over the one at the church. Not on mine. So I held mine up there and let bees pollinate <laughs> my, my grafted crabapple that I stole from them last year. So it's like having a party, <laughs> a pollinating party at the church. And I'm going to have fruit on a little crabapple tree that's only a foot wow, tall. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I did this in the daytime and waved to people instead of at night because that would have looked really creepy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you haven't heard a story like that before. No, I haven't. I haven't. That happened just today. I can send you pictures. Yeah. <laughs> I just held it up. Every time a bee landed on their tree, I put it right by there and it crawled onto mine. And so, I mean, we had a little pollinating party at the church. <laughs> Because they have bees and I don't. So anyway, that's a weird story. What is your most valuable garden mistake? I tell you, man, I I love water gardens. I have dug so many holes and lined them and lined that and filled it up and didn't know what to do with the dirt. I finally realized you don't have to dig a hole to have a water garden. You can get a stock watering tank from one of these farm supply stores and set it right on top of the ground and plant stuff around it. And it looks just as good without having to dig a hole. That's great. I've heard you talk about growing plants under oak trees. Can you give us some good insights into that? Yeah, you know, the ideal thing is to ride around old established neighborhoods and focus on what they've got. And you'll see all sorts of ground covers. Most of the South can grow Asiatic jasmine, ivy, aspidistra, ferns. In older established neighborhoods, you'll see a lot of really good ideas. But also, it's important to keep in mind that roots on top of the ground are kind of cool. You go to botanic gardens in Japan, and they celebrate those roots where they clean around and put a little moss here and there. So roots can be accented, or you can use all sorts of ground covers. Some people say, well, these ground covers will kill your trees. No, they won't. I have pictures of 100-year-old oak trees covered with 100-year-old ivy in England. You can find a ground cover that will thrive under an oak tree or get some other ideas or put a pretty bench out there or a little hard feature, something to draw attention. Instead of flat and the tree trunk, you've got something hard like a bench or an urn or something. The idea is right around older neighborhoods, we don't ever make ourselves look at that kind of stuff. As soon as you do, you'll see all sorts of wonderful ideas, no matter where you live. 
Felder, tell us how people may connect with you. If you Google my name, I come up like a bad gas just all over the place because I do a lot of online work. So mostly they just Google it. But the easiest way is to go to my blog, felderrushing.blog. I don't post a lot of stuff there. It's not that I'm bored with all the stuff people post, but I don't have a lot of how-to to say on my post. It's a what are we doing here type of thing. But felderrushing.blog, it has a thing that says email me. This has been episode 55, Maverick Gardeners with Felder Rushing. Thank you, Felder. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.